0: section fourteen of beacon lights of history volume eleven american founders by john lord this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by k hand john adams part two at the first session of the continental congress in philadelphia in seventeen seventy four although it was composed of the foremost men in the country very little was done except to recommend to the different provinces the non-importation of british goods with a view of forcing england into conciliatory measures at which british statesmen laughed the only result of this self-denying ordinance was to compel people to wear homespun and forego tea and coffee and other luxuries while little was gained except to excite the apprehension of english merchants yet this was no small affair in america for we infer from the letters of john adams to his wife that the habits of the wealthy citizens of philadelphia were even then luxurious much more so than in boston we read of a dinner given to adams and other delegates by a young Quaker lawyer at which were served ducks hams chickens beef pig tarts creams custards jellies trifles floating islands beer porter punch wine and a long list of other things all such indulgences and many others the earnest men and women of that day undertook cheerfully to deny themselves adams returned these civilities by dining a party on salt fish perhaps as a rebuke to the costly entertainments with which he was surfeited and which seemed to him unseasonable in times that tried men's souls but when have philadelphia quakers disdained what is called good living adams at first delighted with the superior men he met before long was impatient with the deliberations of the congress and severely criticised the delegates every man wrote he upon every occasion must show his oratory his criticism and his political abilities the consequence of this is that business is drawn and spun out to an immeasurable length i believe if it was moved and seconded that we should come to a resolution that three and two make five we should be entertained with logic and rhetoric law history politics and mathematics and then we should pass the resolution unanimously in the affirmative these great wits these subtle critics these refined geniuses these learned lawyers these wise statesmen are so fond of showing their parts and powers as to make their consultations very tedious young ned rutledge is a perfect Baba Lincoln, a swallow a sparrow a peacock excessively vain excessively weak and excessively variable and unsteady jejune, inane and puerile sharp words these this session of congress resulted in little else than the interchange of opinions between northern and southern statesmen it was a mere advisory body useful however in preparing the way for a union of the colonies in the coming contest it evidently did not mean business and business was what adams wanted rather than a vain display of abilities without any practical purpose the second session of the congress was not much more satisfactory it did however issue a declaration of rights a protest against a standing army in the colonies a recommendation of commercial non-intercourse with great britain and as a conciliatory measure a petition to the king together with the elaborate addresses to the people of canada of great britain and of the colonies all this talk was of value as putting on record the reasonable list of the american position but practically it accomplished nothing for even during the session the political and military commotion in massachusetts increased the patriotic stir of defense was evident all over the country and in april seventeen seventy five before the second continental congress assembled may tenth concord and lexington had fired the mine and america rushed to arms the other members were not as eager for war as adams was john dickinson of pennsylvania wealthy educated moderate conservative was for sending another petition to england which utterly disgusted adams who now had faith only in ball cartridges and all friendly intercourse ended between the countries but dickinson's views prevailed by a small majority which chafed and hampered adams whose earnest preference was for the most vigorous measures he would seize all the officers of the crown he would declare the colonies free and independent at once he would frankly tell great britain that they were determined to seek alliances with france and spain if the war should be continued he would organize an army and appoint its generals the massachusetts militia were already besieging the british in boston the war had actually begun hence he moved in congress the appointment of colonel george washington of virginia as commander-in-chief much to the mortification of john hancock president of the congress whose vanity led him to believe that he himself was the most fitting man for that important post In moving for this appointment, Adams ran some risk that it would not be agreeable to New England people, who knew very little of Washington aside from his having been a military man and one generally esteemed. But Adams was willing to run the risk in order to precipitate the contest which he knew to be inevitable. He knew further that if Congress would but, as he phrased it, adopt the army before Boston and appoint Colonel Washington commander of it, the appointment would cement the union of the colonies, his supreme desire. New England and Virginia were thus leagued in one, in that by the action of all the colonies in Congress assembled. Although Mr. Adams had been elected Chief Justice of Massachusetts as its ablest lawyer, he could not be spared from the labors of Congress. He was placed on the most important committees, among others on one to prepare a resolution in favor of instructing the colonies to favor states' governments, and later on the one to draft the Declaration of Independence with Jefferson, Franklin, Sherman, and Livingston the special task was assigned to jefferson not only because he was able with his pen but because adams was too outspoken too imprudent and too violent to be trusted in framing such a document nothing could curb his tongue he severely criticised most every member of congress if not openly at least in his confidential letters while in his public efforts with tongue and pen he showed more power than discretion At that time, Thomas Paine appeared in America as a political writer, and his florid pamphlet on common sense was much applauded by this people. Adams's opinion of this irreligious Republican is not favorable. That part of common sense, which relates to independence, is clearly written, but I am bold enough to say there is not a fact nor a reason stated in it which has not been frequently urged in Congress, while his arguments from the Old Testament to prove the unlawfulness of monarchy are ridiculous. The most noteworthy thing connected with Adams's career of four years in Congress was his industry. During that time he served on at least one hundred committees and was always at the front in debating measures of consequence. Perhaps his most memorable service was the share he had in drawing the Articles of Confederation, although he left Philadelphia before his signature could be attached. This instrument had great effect in Europe, since the states proclaimed union as well as independence it was thenceforth easier for the states to borrow money although the confederation was loose-jointed and essentially temporary nationality was not established until the constitution was adopted adams not only guided the earliest attempts at union at home but was charged with great labors in connection with foreign relations while as head of the war board he had enough both of work and of worry to have broken down a stronger man always and everywhere he was doing valuable work On the mismanagement of Silas Deane, as an American envoy in Paris, it became necessary to send an abler man in his place, and John Adams was selected, though he was not distinguished for diplomatic tact. Nor could his mission be called, in all respects, a success. He was too imprudent in speech, and was not, like Franklin, conciliatory with the French Minister of Foreign Affairs, who took a cordial dislike to him, and even snubbed him. But then it was Adams who penetrated the secret motives of the Count de Virginie in rendering aid to America, which Franklin would not believe or could not see. Nor were the relations of Adams very pleasant with the veteran Franklin himself, whose merits he conceived to be exaggerated, and of whom it is generally believed he was envious. He was as fussy in business details as Franklin was easy and careless. He thought Franklin lived too luxuriously and was too fond of the praises of women in 1780 adams transferred his residence to amsterdam in order to secure the recognition of independence and to get loans from dutch merchants but he did not meet with much success until the surrender of lord cornwallis virtually closed the war he then returned to paris in 1782 to assist franklin and jay to arrange the treaty of peace with great britain and the acknowledgment of the independence of the states and here his steady persistency united with a clear discernment of j obtained important concessions in reference to the fisheries the navigation of the mississippi and american commerce adams never liked france as franklin and jefferson did the french seemed to him shallow insincere egotistical and swayed by fanciful theories ardent as was his love of liberty he distrusted the french revolution and had no faith in its leaders nor was he a zealous republican he saw more in the english constitution to admire than americans generally did although while he respected english institutions he had small liking for englishmen as they had for him in truth he was a born grumbler and a censorious critic he did not like anybody very much except his wife and beyond his domestic circle saw more faults than virtues in those with whom he was associated even with his ardent temperament he had not those warm friendships which marked franklin and jefferson john adams found his residence abroad rather irksome and unpleasant and he longed to return to his happy home but his services as diplomatist were needed in england no more suitable representative of the young republic it was thought could be found in spite of his impatience restlessness pugnacity imprudence and want of self-control for he was intelligent shrewd high-spirited and quick-sighted the diplomatists could not stand before his blunt directness and he generally carried his point by eloquence and audacity his presence was commanding and he impressed everybody by his magnetism and brain power so congress in 1785 appointed him minister to great britain the king forced himself to receive Adams graciously in his closet but afterwards he treated him even with rudeness and of course the social circles of london did the same the minister soon found his position more uncomfortable even than it had been in paris his salary also was too small to support his rank like other ambassadors and he was obliged to economize he represented a league rather than a nation a league too poor and feeble to pay its debts and he had to endure many insults on that account nor could he understand the unfriendly spirit with which he was received he had hoped that england would have forgotten her humiliation but discovered his error when he learned that the states were to be indirectly crushed and hampered by commercial restrictions and open violations of the laws of nations England, being still in a state of irritation toward her former colonies, he was not treated with becoming courtesy, and of course had no social triumphs, such as Franklin had enjoyed at Paris. Finding that he could not accomplish what he had desired and hoped for, he became disgusted, possibly embittered, and sent in his resignation, after a three years' residence in London, and returned home altogether his career as a diplomatist was not a great success his comparative failure however was caused rather by the difficulties he had to surmount than by want of diplomatic skill if he was not as successful as had been hoped he returned with unsullied reputation he had made no great mistakes and had proved himself honest incorruptible laborious and patriotic the country appreciated his services when under the new constitution the consolidated union chose its rulers and elevated him to the second office in the republic the only great flaw in adams as vice-president was his strange jealousy of washington a jealousy hardly to be credited were it not for the uniform testimony of historians he stood even higher than hamilton between whom and himself there were unpleasant relations indeed adams's dislike of both hamilton and jefferson was to some extent justified by unmistakable evidences of enmity on their part the rivalries and jealousies among the great leaders of the revolutionary period are a blot on our history but patriots and heroes as those men were they were all human and adams was peculiarly so by universal consent he is conceded to have been a prime factor in the success of the revolution he held back congress when reconciliation was in the air he committed the whole country to the sport of new england and gave to the war its indispensable condition of success the leadership of washington he was called by jefferson the colossus of debate in carrying the declaration of independence and cutting loose from england he was wise and strong and indefatigable in governmental construction as well as in maintaining the armies in the field he accomplished vast labors affecting both the domestic and foreign relations of the country and despite his unpleasant personal qualities of conceit and irritability his praise was in every mouth he could well afford to recognize the full worth of every one of his co-laborers but he did not magnanimity was certainly not his most prominent trait the duties of a vice-president hardly allow scope for great abilities the office is only a stepping-stone there was little opportunity to engage in the debates which agitated the country the duties of judicially presiding over the senate were not congenial to a man of the hot temper and ambition of adams and when party lines were drawn between the federalists and republicans he earnestly espoused the principles of the former he was in no sense a democrat except in his recognition of popular political rights he believed in the rule of character as indicated by intellect and property he had no great sympathy with the people in their aspirations although springing from the people himself the son of a moderate farmer no more distinguished than ordinary farmers he was the first one of his family to reach eminence or wealth the accusation against him of wishing to introduce a king lords and commons was most unjust but he was at heart an aristocrat as much as were hamilton and governor morris and the more his character was scrutinized after he had won distinction the less popular he was his brightest days were when he was inspiring his countrymen by his eloquence to achieve their independence in office adams did not preeminently shine notwithstanding his executive ability and business habits it is true the equal division of the senate on some very important measures such as the power of the president to remove from office without the consent of the senate the monetary policy proposed by hamilton and some others gave him the opportunity by his casting vote to sustain the administration and thus decide great principles with advantage to the country and his eight years of comparative quiet in that position were happy and restful ones but adams loved praise flattery and social position he was easily piqued and quickly showed it he did not pass for what he was worth since he was apt to show his worst side first without tact and without policy but no one ever doubted his devotion to the country any more than his abilities moreover he was too fond of titles and the trappings of office and the insignia of rank to be favorites with the plain people not from personal vanity great as that was in him but from his notions of the dignities of high office such as he had seen abroad hence he recommended to washington the etiquette of a court and kept it up himself when he became president against this must be placed his fondness for leaving the capital and running off to make little visits to his farm at Quincy, massachusetts where he was always happiest i dwell briefly on his career as vice-president because he had in it so little to do nor was his presidency marked by great events when upon the completion of washington's second term and the refusal of that great man to enter upon a third adams was elevated in 1797 to the highest position the country had settled down to its normal pursuits there were few movements to arrest the attention of historians the most important event of the time was doubtless the formation of the two great political parties which divided the nation one led by hamilton and the other by jefferson they were the natural development of the discussion on adopting the federal constitution the federalists composed chiefly of the professional classes the men of wealth and of social position and the old officers of the army wanted a strong central government protection to infant manufactures banks and tariffs in short whatever would contribute to the ascendancy of intellect and prosperity the republicans largely made up of small farmers mechanics and laboring people desired the extension of the right of suffrage the prosperity of agriculturists and state ascendancy And were fearful of the encroachments of the general government upon the reserved rights of the states and the people at large but the leaders of this people's party men like the clintons of the state of new york were sometimes as aristocratic in their social life as the leaders of the federalists during the revolutionary war the only parties were those who aimed at national independence and the royalists or tories who did not wish to sever their connection with the mother country but these tories had no political influence when the government was established under washington during his first term of office there was ostensibly but one party it was not until his second term that there were marked divisions then public opinion was divided between those who followed hamilton jay and adams and those who looked up to jefferson and perhaps madison as leaders in the lines to be pursued by the general government in reference to banks internal improvements commercial tariffs and the extension of the suffrage the army and the navy and other subjects the quarrels and animosities between these two parties in that early day have never been exceeded in bitterness ministers preached political sermons the newspapers indulged in unrestricted abuse of public men the air was full of political slanders lies and misrepresentations family ties were sundered and old friendships were broken the federalists were distrustful of the french revolution and finally hostile to it while the republican democrats were its violent advocates in new york nearly every episcopalian was a federalist and in massachusetts and connecticut nearly every congregational minister freethinkers in religion were generally democrats as the party gradually came to be called farmers were pretty evenly divided but their hired hands were democrats and so were most immigrants Whatever the difference of opinion among the contending parties, however, they were sincere and earnest and equally patriotic. The people selected for office those whom they deemed most capable, or those who would be most useful to the parties representing their political views. It never occurred to the people of either party to vote with a view of advancing their own selfish and private interests. If it was proposed to erect a public building, or dig a canal, or construct an aqueduct, they would vote for or against it according to their notions of public utility they never dreamed of the spoils of jobbery in other words the contractors and bosses did not say to the people if you will vote for me as the superintendent of this public improvement i will employ you on the works whether you are industrious and capable or idle and worthless there were then no tammany hall politicians or philadelphia republican ringsters the spoils system was unknown that is an invention of later times politicians did not seek office with a view of getting rich both federalists and democrats sought office to secure either the ascendancy of their party or what they deemed the welfare of the country as the democratic leaders made appeals to a larger constituency consisting of the laboring classes than the federalists did they gradually gained the ascendancy moreover they were more united the federal leaders quarrelled among themselves adams and hamilton were accused of breaking up their party Jefferson adhered to his early principles, and looked upon the advance of democratic power as the logical result of the principles of the Declaration of Independence. He had unlimited faith in the instincts and aspirations of the people, and in their ability to rule themselves, while Adams thought that the masses were not able to select their wisest and greatest men for rulers. The latter would therefore restrict the suffrage to men of property and education, while Jefferson would give it to every citizen, whether poor or rich, learned or ignorant. End of section 14.